All right, folks, it's that time of the year again, Winter Village. It's going to be a little bit later than last year, but we're still going to have all the fun, as you just saw in uh, the video, and we will uh, we'll see what we can do about that snow machine. Now, please sign up to volunteer by going to the website. Uh, we're taking volunteers right now, and we do need your help to, uh, to make this a reality. Now, additionally, I did want to take a moment this morning just to say thank you to the congregation from our entire staff. Uh, this week, we were able to receive that ministry appreciation uh, money you so generously gave, and we are just blown away. So from everybody here, we just want to say thank you. We are blessed to serve such a wonderful congregation. To God be the glory. Amen. All right, so we have reached the penultimate message in our Nehemiah series. Uh, last week, we explored Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 9. Today, we're going to jump ahead. We're going to catapult ahead to Nehemiah 13. And so I'll invite you to join me in your Bibles in Nehemiah chapter 13. And I promise you won't forget this chapter. Uh, next week, Pastor and Dave and I are going to close out the series with a joint vision message that we do every year. And we may even complete the wall. So stay tuned. You've got to come back uh, to see that next week. Uh, this week, chapter 13. Now, let me give you an image to capture the essence of this chapter, and that is the image of the Incredible Hulk. Do I have any Hulk fans out there this morning? All right, a few more than the first uh, service. Yes, Hulk-like. Give me a Hulk po In fact, turn to your neighbor and just go, Hulk, Hulk. There you go. Well, the Incredible Hulk first appeared in Marvel Comics in the year 1962, uh, Hulk has an alter ego, and his name is Bruce Banner, who was famously exposed to gamma radiation, giving him super strength. But there is a catch. Uh, to achieve that super strength, he needs to turn into this, into this giant green rage monster called the Hulk. And who knows what happens, what has to happen for Bruce Banner to turn into the Hulk. All right, we give you a hint on the screen here. He's got to get angry. Right? He's got to get angry. The character has appeared in all these various comics, these TV shows, these movies, but the tagline is always the same. Whenever something bad happens, Bruce Banner gives a warning. That will make me angry. And you won't like me when I'm angry. And then when Hulk gets angry, what does Hulk do next? Hulk smash! Hulk smash! Now, Hulk's anger is a little temperamental, right? Sometimes he hits the bad guys. Sometimes he destroys a city and causes unnecessary destruction. Now, some of you are saying, what in the world does this have to do with Nehemiah chapter 13? My goodness. Well, in chapter 13, Nehemiah gets a little angry. And he gives a bit of a Hulk smash in chapter 13, verse 25, where we read this. He says, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And you say, what? Is that like a Nehemiah smash? What in the world is going on? What made him do this? Well, if you want to know the context of this verse, you got to listen until the end. So uh, you got you to hang with me until we get there. What I'd like to talk with you today, what I want to speak with you about today, is the topic of anger. And I want to ask you, what makes you angry? Now, initially, I suspect that some of us will associate negative emotions with anger. Anger. In fact, you might even think that people should strive to never, ever, ever get angry. And what I want to do is challenge you today and just simply say anger is both good and bad. When the Hulk gets angry, sometimes he does something righteous, like save the planet. Uh, other times, he winds up hurting people. And the solution is not to avoid anger, but to evaluate it and channel it properly. And the first step to doing that is asking what makes you angry. 
Now, let's have some real talk here at the beginning. Some of us get angry way too often. And so this is one of those messages where the spouse's elbow starts going like this and say, Psst, Holy Spirit speaking today. That's right. Preach. Yes, some of us get angry way too often, and we get angry at the wrong things. And when we do, we start to cause some damage in our relationships. Now, there's another group of people in this room because some of us get angry way too little, right? And if that's you, you're probably saying, why would I get angry? Anger is bad. But again, I want to challenge you. Anger reveals something about your heart because we get angry about the things we care about, And if we never get angry, you might start wondering, do we care about anything? Some anger's bad, yes. If you're flying off the handle because somebody moved your fork half an inch at the dinner table, you need to ask yourself what's going on. Some of us, Thanksgiving's this week, right? And there's going to be an incident, most likely, at Thanksgiving involving a turkey baster and some oil and your skin, and you're going to be flying off the handle. Or your pet's going to jump on the table looking like this. Ever happen to anybody? All it takes is a trigger, and some of us turn into the angry turkey at Thanksgiving, and nobody likes the angry turkey. Some anger's bad, but some anger's good, right? When we see people getting mistreated, if we see injustice, things like trafficking, which you heard about this morning, if if the name of Jesus is being profaned, or if something is affecting our kids, you better believe we should be righteously angry, Because anger often leads to action. And now the caveat is we have to learn how to channel that anger in a godly way for good. Because passivity can really be unhealthy. And some of us are passive when we should have the courage to speak and to act. And that's what brings us to Nehemiah 13. But in order to understand why Nehemiah got to a place where he's beating people up and pulling out beards, as unhealthy as that may be, we have to know the background of Nehemiah chapter 10. So last week, we finished by reading Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, which said this, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And so God's people are now making this covenant promise. Now, what is a covenant? Well, biblically speaking, a covenant is often an agreement between God and his People, which involves promises and commitments and obligations on both sides. What it does is it outlines the relationship along with the consequences if you break the covenant. So what are the promises that Israel makes in Nehemiah chapter 10? Look at verse 30 to 32 of chapter 10. It says this, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly for the service of the house of our God. So did you catch them? Three promises. Three promises. Number one, we're not going to marry outside the faith. Number two, we're going to keep the Sabbath. And number three, we're going to tithe in support of temple work. Notice Israel mentions here they have obligations to keep this covenant. And so since I'm skipping over three chapters, let me give you a quick summary, a very brief summary of chapters 10 to 12, uh, because I got to note, if you read 10 to 12, there's just a lot of lists of names. And I was looking at it this week, and I said, what am I going to do with all these names? So we're at at chapter 13. Chapter 10 talks about this covenant promise. uh, Chapter 11 is all about regathering the people and populating Jerusalem. And then chapter 12 simply focuses on dedicating the wall and caring for the temple. And then you get to chapter 13. 
And in chapter 13, we learn that Nehemiah has left Jerusalem. He's gone back to King Artaxerxes. And then he eventually comes back to Jerusalem. But when he does, he finds the people of God a mess. None of these covenant promises from chapter 10 are being kept. The compromise has now led to idolatry. And Nehemiah is not happy. He's angry for his people and he's angry for his God in a righteous anger. And so I'm going to ask you again, what makes you angry? Too much anger at the wrong things can cause damage. Too little anger can lead to apathy. And so I want to suggest today that Nehemiah shows us this truth. We need to get angry. We need to get upset at the right things. We get angry for the things that we love. If something is stealing the worship of God, if something is causing us to sin, we need to smash it. Nehemiah 13 shows us four areas, four areas that cause us to get angry because we care about them. And each of these areas reveals something about our heart. The four areas are this. Number one, deceptive friends. Number two, mishandled finances. Number three, avoidable fatigue. And then number four, sometimes we fight with our family. So friends, finances, fatigue, and family. Anybody ever get upset at those? I know nobody in here ever does that. Each of those areas has the potential to make us angry, and Nehemiah encounters all four in chapter 13. So let's pray, and we're going to ask God to give us a holy discontent in the right areas today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace, for your love, for your mercy. Uh, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you will prepare our hearts today to hear from you. And Lord, I pray as we leave today that we would be changed and transformed for your glory, that we would be content and rested in you, and that our hearts would match your heart today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. What makes us angry? Well, our friends. Sometimes our friends do make us angry, especially if they're being deceptive. Anybody have some deceptive friends out there? The people we keep closest to us influence our thinking, and sometimes, if we're not careful, they can lead us away from God. We have to be careful the company that we keep. Now, in the last part of chapter 12, and then the first part of chapter 13, it's all about an orderly worship in the temple and separating out people who don't worship God. There's a heavy emphasis on God's glory being central, and anyone or anything who, who keeps us from worshiping God should be exposed even if we're friendly with them. Well, in verses 4 to 5, we meet two characters who cause us to evaluate friendship. So we read this, verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber. All right, so we learn that Eliashib, he's a priest, he's a leader with some authority, but who is Tobiah? Does anybody remember? Tobiah was an Ammonite, not a believer in Yahweh God, and in chapter 13, 1 to 3, God specifically said the Ammonites were not allowed in the temple. He was also an enemy of Nehemiah from earlier in the story, you may remember, and the point that's being made here is this, he should not be in the temple. Now, where's Nehemiah? Well, again, verse 6 tells us Nehemiah has gone back to Persia uh, to King Artaxerxes to provide a report. So he's gone while this is happening. And while he's gone, the people have let their guard down. They've allowed the enemy to enter the temple and presumably influence God's people. And I just got to say, this is a big deal. It's a big deal. So the question is, church, is there a Tobiah in your temple? 
That's a danger we all face. Our enemy never sleeps. He's always looking for our weaknesses and our defenses, trying to sneak into the sacred places of our heart. Our enemy will try to ingratiate himself to us. He will try to make us think that he's not a threat. And then before you know it, he's in the temple, subtly leading us away from Jesus, making us think sin is not a big deal. We all have to watch out for Tobiah. Now, how does Nehemiah respond when he discovers Tobiah in the temple? Look at verse 7. It says, And after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of our God. And what does he say? I was very angry. Evil! Nehemiah returns to find his sworn enemy has been allowed to live in the temple where the people are worshiping God. God's temple has been desecrated by his very presence, and we read that Nehemiah is not happy about this. Now, again, anger can be used for good or bad. In this case, Nehemiah's anger is for the compromise of God's glory, and his anger causes him now to take action. And I love how the next few verses put it. Look at verse, the end of verse 8 and 9. It says this, I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders and they cleansed the chamber. In other words, Hulk smash. He picks up all the furniture. He throws it out. Imagine if somebody comes into your house, picks up your couch, picks up your bed, picks up your dining room table, and just tosses it in the street. Then they fumigate your house because they don't want to smell you anymore. That's what the word cleansed means here. Nehemiah literally is removing the stench of Tobiah from the temple. So I will ask again, is there a Tobiah in your temple? And this doesn't necessarily mean a person. Have you allowed something deceptive or destructive to become friendly with your heart? As the sins of the flesh are very enticing. They make promises, but they can't keep those promises. For example, lust. All right? It promises you love and fulfillment in whatever form it comes in, but it will leave you empty and depressed. Gossip, right? It makes you feel really important because you have some kind of secret knowledge, knowledge that you're leveraging against people, but before long, you're going to lose relationships and be alone. Envy, it tells your heart that you deserve that thing you want, and it's okay to do anything, anything to get it. These sins appeal to our flesh. They deceive us. They pretend to be our friends. They woo us to the point where we open the door, let them in behind the wall, and once they're there long enough, we allow them to take up residence in our heart. And so before you know it, Tobiah is in the temple. Now here's the crazy thing. These deceptive friends make us angry because of their false promises but many of us keep them around because they're familiar. So sins like lust and gossip and envy and a whole host of others, they all make us feel good in the moment and they blind us to destruction. And what we need to do is take a step back, see that destruction and get angry enough at that sin to throw Tobiah out of the temple. Maybe we need to get a real friend in our lives like Nehemiah to help. Beware deceptive friends you got to get a true friend who will help you to Hulk smash that sin idol in your heart. Then you're going to be free to worship 
the one true God. You got to cleanse the temple so God <clears throat> will smell the sweet aroma of true worship. Deceptive friends make us angry. But secondly, many of us get angry at finances, and so does Nehemiah. Some of us get angry at finances, and so does Nehemiah. Specifically, finances touch every part of our lives, which is why they make us angry. We get stressed and angry when we don't have enough money, and we get angry when people misuse money. Do you remember there was a covenant promise, again, back in chapter 10 that focused on money? What did the people of God say? Verse 30 says, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly for the service of the house of our God. We take on ourselves the obligation to give. So this is a covenant promise revolving around tithing. Now, tithe was a financial gift and is a financial gift offered to support the work of and upkeep of the temple and the temple work. In the Old Testament, uh, these offerings could actually add up to about 23% of your income. 23%, almost a quarter. Now, the New Testament uses the language of sacrificial giving to support the work of ministry because the reality is God's kingdom uh, right now requires financial resources. It requires resources to do the work of people like faith and other uh, missionaries that we support. And giving is an important part of our spiritual life. But a lot of people don't like to talk about money. Now, why is that? In fact, maybe right now you're saying, why, should, why are we talking about money in church? I shouldn't be doing that. Because money and where we spend it reveals the deep desires of our hearts. How we spend and use money reveals what we care about, where we find our security, and ultimately what we love. And if you don't believe me, at the end of the month, at the end of this month, if you don't do this, take a look at your bank account and tally your spending and ask yourself, what does all that reveal about my heart? And if personal financial stewardship is an area where you need to grow, let me just offer a reminder. We are uh, having a Financial Peace University course in January, and I, I highly recommend you take it. In fact, this course helped me to evaluate my heart and grow in my giving potential. If personal financial stewardship is what you need, that's the course to take. Now, here's what I learned. Giving to the work of God reveals how much we trust God. Do you believe that God will take care of you if you only have 90% of your income? Now, in reality, God doesn't need our money. He's God, after all. But he wants to use us for his glory. Amen. Now, if you come back to Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 10, it's revealed that the people of God are not giving as they promised. And the temple is now in disrepair. And Ezra and Nehemiah, who led the people back from exile to rebuild the temple and the city, they're concerned because after you build stuff, you need to maintain it. So what is Nehemiah going to say when he discovers that, uh, that all the work and sacrifice that he, he put in has been wasted? Look at verse 10. He says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites... And the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So not only is the temple in disrepair, but the, the Levites and the priests and the other temple workers, they can't even live there. They have to live way far away, like an hour away, uh, and walk to the temple because there's no light rail in this, in this uh, day and age, no subway to take. That's not the way it's supposed to be. The finances are being mishandled, and Nehemiah is angry enough now to confront the people. Look at verse 11. He says, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? 
And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and oil into the storehouses. So Nehemiah has a, uh, has a, a come to Yahweh meeting, let's put it that way, with all the people of Israel. This confrontation was for their good, and the correction came quickly. But what Nehemiah now does is he puts structures in place to prevent this from happening again. And we're told in verse 13 that he appoints reliable treasurers. Church, we need treasurers who are reliable when it comes to finances because money brings with it temptation. You want people in place who are reliable, who know what they're doing, and who want God to get the glory. Now, here at NBC, I just got to give a shout out. We have a wonderful and committed group of people who handle our finances. Uh, John McCarthy, treasurer of our, of our elders. Sue Turner, Christy Gall, help keep our finances in order on staff, along with Alan Ukritnikun and the whole finance team, just doing a wonderful job. All of them care about the good stewardship of the church and maximizing kingdom investment. So I just want to say thank you for your leadership in that area. You are reliable treasurers of the New Testament temple. So Nehemiah corrects this financial problem, but notice he's also getting angry over the issue, and the anger then causes him to take action. And over and over again, for the rest of the chapter, there's a refrain, and it goes like this. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. He says, remember me, remember me, remember me. And I think these are like little prayers that he's offering up, asking God, help me, Lord. Lord, help me as I follow you. Help me as I'm confronting your people and I'm pointing them back to you. I need you here. Remember me. Now, before we leave this point, I want to talk briefly about how money impacts our hearts. Because yes, the truth is, God wants us to be good stewards who manage uh, the money he has given to us well and for kingdom purposes. Giving, yes, is part of spiritual maturity because money is spiritual. It reveals what's in our heart. It reveals we're replacing our trust. Now, let me give you an exercise just to think about how money affects us. Um, let's just picture this. Just imagine uh, you are making, let's say, $150,000 a year. 150K. Now, you might make more, you might make less. Uh, let's just use this as a barometer. And in reality, with the current inflation, it's probably about 75,000 with all the taxes. <laughs> so you get used to life on $150,000 a year and you feel like you're in a good place. Everything's in order. And then as time goes along, you get promoted. You get more successful. Your salary goes up. And let's say now you're making $500,000 a year. Okay, a lot better. And so then your lifestyle grows and, and, and you start to get used to it. But then what happens is you lose your job. And, and it's, it's hard to get the next job. And so you got to take one and, and you're back making $150,000. Still an okay salary, but, but it's a lot less. Now, now, what have you gotten used to at the $500,000 level that you would then have to give up? And, and ask yourself, why would it be hard to adjust that lifestyle? What did the loss of that money reveal about your, your heart? Because I think the point is, don't let money capture you to a point that you don't trust God and that you're not being generous. He wants all of us. So friends, finances, they make us angry. The third category is fatigue. Fatigue. When we're tired, when we lack rest and sleep, we get a little snippy. Anybody else? Anybody else out there tired? Yes, I can see some heads nodding off, so I, I understand, right? 
But I got to tell you, this is the 1045 service, so come on, wake up. <laughs> Perhaps it's because you're not getting enough rest. And I got to tell you, when I don't get enough sleep, sleep my wife will tell you, Hulk smash! <laughs> because, listen, this, it, it's, it's hard. You, some of you out there know the struggle. But the question I want to ask is why? Why don't we rest? Now, I know some of us out there, you got little kids and it seems like their mission, the whole reason they're in, in your life right now is to keep you from going to sleep. And it's in those moments, even then, in that season, as hard as it is, you got to trust God to sustain you. But that's not always going to be the case, or at least I'm told it's not always going to be the case. Sometimes we could rest, but we choose not to. We keep putting those extra hours into work or on that project or distracting ourselves by flipping through Instagram later at night, and then we don't sleep. And in many cases, the fatigue is avoidable because we're not disciplined at sleep. We need rest. So the third compromise for Israel revolves around the Sabbath. It has become very secular, having nothing to do with God. And Nehemiah sees this problem in verse 15. He says this, in those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Now, let me ask you a question. What was the purpose of the Sabbath? Well, just like tithing, right, right, yes. But just like tithing, it's intended to rest to show your dependence on God, that Sabbath rest helps us to trust that God will help us accomplish everything we need in six days rather than seven. And if you look at it from a New Testament perspective, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I am the what? I am the Lord of the Sabbath, meaning we can rest in him and stop performing to get all the acceptance we think we need. So the people of Israel made a covenant promise with uh, God to keep the Sabbath, and in this context, they're neglecting it, meaning they didn't trust God. And when we choose to place our faith in another functional savior other than Jesus, we're not trusting him with our lives. So Nehemiah continues in verse 16. He says, Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And again, Nehemiah's not happy with this because not only are the people not keeping the Sabbath, they're actively buying and selling things on the Sabbath. And Nehemiah is in good company here because who else got angry when this happened? Do you remember the famous scene of Jesus in the temple? He enters the temple on the Sabbath. People are, during the week, and, and people are buying and selling in the temple. And what does Jesus do? He starts flipping tables. Starts, starts smashing tables, right? Why was Jesus so angry? Mark 11 says, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but they have made it a den of robbers. Jesus turns over the tables because the people are not using the temple to give glory to God. Instead, they are desecrating it and not living for God's glory because the temple ground is sacred and so should their hearts be. Now, how does Nehemiah respond? Verse 17, he says this, then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And he said, all right, hold on there, Nehemiah. Whoa, 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 evil? I'm evil for working hard? God's wrath is coming upon us? Can anybody out there tell me, is Nehemiah crazy or is he making a point here? Why is he so angry? 
I want to suggest Nehemiah is angry because Israel's neglect is ruining his life's work. Nehemiah and Ezra, like him, gave their entire lives to bring the people back and restore the temple and the city. And the people then entered this covenant with their God, and now, because of their actions, it could all be lost. Have you ever had that happen to you? You invested in something, it could be lost because somebody else was squandering it. I'll give you another illustration. Imagine that you, you out there, you worked really hard your whole life, and you sacrificed, and you saved up a lot of money. Let's say you, you saved up $200,000 for college, which I don't even know if that gets you four years of college nowadays, but let's say you saved it up. It's a good amount of money. You worked really hard. You had to sacrifice to make it happen, and then your child goes to college, and all they do is party and flunk out the first year and squander your money. Now, would that make you upset? Well, if you're younger, imagine you worked really hard and you saved up money to buy your first car. And after you bought that car, somebody else drives it and crashes it. And all that effort that you put into it, poof, gone. Nehemiah is angry because the people are squandering all the effort. Not just he, but they put into the restoration. And now they might experience God's judgment and wind up right back where they started. And he says, this has to stop. In fact, look at how serious he takes this. Verses 19 to 21, I love these verses. It says this, As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut, and I gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, and that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you, coming at you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah just says, hey, shut the doors, post the guards, and then if the merchants and the business people show up again, they're coming like, like a pack of animals ready to get in, he threatens them and says, step back. He's, he's like that old man shouting, get off my lawn, I'll call the police, watch out. Should be a picture for that. Get off my lawn. Watch out. <laughs> Apparently it worked because they went away and never came back on the Sabbath again. So I'm just saying. Now, friends, the Sabbath is all about resting our hearts and focusing on Jesus. And what I want to exhort you today is that too many of us live these fast-paced lives that we miss Jesus. We, we got a mountain of things to do. We never take a day off. We could if we were more disciplined. Or we know that we have a worry that we should give to Jesus, but, but we still, out of habit, we're just trusting our own efforts. And so I'll ask you again, why don't we rest? Is it because we're looking for a, approval from other people? Now, truthfully, I, I think part of it is the world's incentive structure. Right? We live in a crazy, busy world that rewards us for our busyness. Because if we work really hard... Harder than anybody else, well, people then are going to respect us. People want to be us. People, people might love us. And then what we do, this is crazy, then what we do is we pass on that mindset to our kids. And so what we do is we put our kids in these, these high-achieving programs with hours and hours of homework and, and then sports and, and theater and work and all these extracurricular activities on top of that. And then once they get old enough, then we're never going to see them again, right? But at least they got into a good college, which we saved up money for. Well, again, listen, that's all well and good. Like, if it, 
excellence, high achievement, okay. But let me ask you something. What does it get us if we haven't learned ourselves and we haven't taught our kids to rest in Jesus? What does it get us? Have we sacrificed everything on the altar of workaholism? Are our families that, that sacrificial lamb on the altar of financial success? Are we satisfied with a 15-minute devotion every day, but we work six hours a day, 12, six, six days a week, 12 hours a day? Because in a lot of cases, it's avoidable fatigue, and it should make us angry because God is getting short-changed. Instead, let's pray like Nehemiah, verse 22. He says, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Remember me, Lord. Remember me. Spare my shortcomings. Give me a righteous anger for my sin and, 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 and apathy and fill me with a hunger for you, Lord. Help me to rest in your steadfast love. Amen. So friends, finances, Fatigue, there's one more problem Nehemiah encounters, if you'll indulge me. And it's, it, this one really stirs our heart, and that's the topic of family. Sometimes we fight with our family. And that's top of mind because Thanksgiving is this week, right? Nothing stirs our heart quite like Uncle Larry and his politics at the Thanksgiving table. <laughs> For some of us, our family is a regular battle. It seems like everyone is not on the same page, even when it comes to faith. And maybe in your family, some are, not, not, are, um, some are not Christians. Others are. Some of us, we, we struggle because our kids, they've, they've walked away uh, from Jesus and our hearts have been captured by the message of the world. Or, or then we start to feel regret and we wonder, could I have done more? Well, the problem Nehemiah encounters in the last part of chapter 13 has to do with the passing on the faith to the next generation. And his heart is burdened for this. And it actually may be the thing that makes him the angriest of all. So we read this in verse 23. It says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Pause. Some of you may remember this was the same problem found in Ezra 10. And I am not sure who assigned me both of these passages, but here it is again. <laughs> You may remember that Ezra had a rather problematic response to the issue of intermarriage. Nehemiah also has a problem with this, and, and it's, it's the problem of what I'll call spiritual intermarriage, because essentially what's happened is the Jewish people, the people of God, were marrying foreign people who had not converted to worship Yahweh God, and this was a big deal. I can't emphasize that enough. Because now false worship, Tobiah literally, is coming into the home the place where families are formed. So let me illustrate this to give you an idea of why it was such a big problem. Some of you in the audience are married, okay? Others, you were married. Uh, some of you, you're gonna be married someday. And I'm just gonna tell you, marriage changes you. The two become one flesh. Your spouse influences your thinking, the things you care about. You make decisions together. By God's grace, you raise kids together. You're not the same person now before, than you were before you got married. And, and if you marry somebody who's not a Christian, and even somebody who's, who's a Christian but maybe is not walking with Jesus at the same pace as you, there's gonna be some friction. Do you know why? Because there's gonna be a pull to please your spouse over God. Paul writes about that, 1 Corinthians 7, 2 Corinthians 5. He addresses that. It's gonna impact your spiritual life and how you raise kids. 
So when Nehemiah says that the Jews are marrying the Ashdodites and the Ammonites and the Moabites, he's angry because this is going to seriously compromise the passing on of the faith. Now, what's his proof? He goes on and he cites King Solomon, verse 26. It says, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Now, of course, the sin wasn't the fault of the women because Solomon made the choice and allowed himself to be influenced. He chose to allow himself to, into a compromising situation. And then in 1 Kings, we get the firsthand report of what happened to Solomon. 1 Kings 11.4 says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Every time I read that, it's just such a sad verse. And, and you know, if you read the rest of 1 Kings, you know it didn't go well. But it's the crux of the matter. It's what's at stake. It's the idol of romance. And I can't tell you how many times I have had friends, I've watched students, or people I knew who grew up in the church, were walking with Jesus, seemed to be on fire for Jesus, and then they got to college, and, and they got into a relationship. They got into their, their 20s, their 30s, you know, getting into your 40s or later, and you're dating somebody who's not a believer, and then you know what happens? They start questioning their faith. Interesting how that works out. Why? Because that relationship changes you, and it becomes more important to you than following Christ. It captures your heart. And whatever covenant promise you think you made by walking down an aisle or praying a prayer goes out the window on the altar of romance and what it promises. How many of us have been captured by romance? Beware. Your relationship with and commitment to Christ is the most important thing in life. Don't let dating take you away from him. And if you're married, it will not merely affect you. It will affect your kids. Look at verse 24. This is it. Verse 24, and half of our children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Now, look at that word language. That, that is crucially important because we're told that the kids right here, they spoke a different language, a language that was not the people of God. Now, remember, at the time, faith was still passed on orally, and the Hebrew scriptures they, they were the language of Scripture. Hebrew was the language. That was the language of Judah. And so if the children did not speak Hebrew, they, they would never hear the story of the Scriptures. And their faith would either be lost or it would never materialize. And that's why it's such a big deal. The children would miss the message of Scripture. They would not learn about God and the deep things. And the heart of the family then would be torn apart because their hearts were not submitted to the same God. And now... We circle back to the beginning. Why did Nehemiah turn into the Hulk? Well, it's in this context that we get to Nehemiah 13.25. He says, and I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Now, again, why would he get so angry? Because the faith of the people of God is in jeopardy. The kids are being harmed due to their selfishness. And he's saying, don't you see what you're doing? If I got to pull out your beard to wake you up and see how serious this is, I'll do it. 
Now, just to be clear, I'm not endorsing this action. In fact, I told John, where's John? I told John, John, your beard is safe. It's a beautiful beard, John. We're not pulling it out. Again, the Old Testament is descriptive, not prescriptive. If you start beating people, I'm just going to tell you, we're going to call the police, okay? And Nehemiah shouldn't have done it either. But I'm bringing it up, I want you to see the point is, do you see why he's so angry, why he's fired up about this? Because the people of God succumbed to the worship of idols. Their hearts were far from God. It was tearing apart their families, and it was affecting their children. And Nehemiah literally grabs the problem by the throat, the beard, and confronts them and says, stop it. Because if the children don't have the right language, it's a problem. Now, let me ask you, what language are you teaching your kids? Now, language, that, that is such an interesting topic nowadays. Oh, man, if I, had, if I used bad language growing up, I would get some soap in my mouth. Anybody else? Yeah, that, that, that was, that, that's how the 80s rolled. Uh, not anymore. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is too often our young people, they are more adept at the language of popular culture rather than the scriptures. How many Taylor Swift songs do you have memorized? And then compare that with how many Bible verses you have memorized. Because what you have memorized is what gets into your heart. That's why I love what we're doing at the Awana program right now here at NBC, trying to get the scriptures in the heart. We want our kids to have the language of faith because when it affects the next generation, that's when the temperature gets kicked up a notch, right? Gen Z and beyond. We've heard about a lot of parents rising up and voicing their opinions about the language their kids are exposed to, and that, that even goes beyond Christians. You know, this week I was listening to a report about education. Do you know in the last few years what type of schooling has had the largest growth? Homeschooling. Now, that's not a commentary on what you've chosen to do with your kids. There's a lot of factors at play. With that, I'm just pointing out that it's growing, and I think a major reason is the parents want a larger say in, in what their kids get taught. And if you're a Christian, the reality is, as a parent, you have the primary responsibility of forming your child in the Lord. And that goes way beyond Sunday school once a week. If you drop your kid off, that's great. We want to help. But that, this, the church is not primary. The family is primary. And so you have to ask yourself, am I imparting a biblical view of the world as it relates to technology and relationships and culture? Are you teaching your kids the language of the scriptures? Because the family is called to pass on the faith to the next generation. And when our kids walk away from the faith, that should make us angry and we want to do something about it. Why? Because we love them. So don't settle for the language of Ashdod. Our kids need the language of Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So if you come back to the Hulk for just a moment, you got to ask yourself, what sin in my life do I need to smash? What is making me angry? Anger, again, is a window into your soul. It shows us what we truly love. There's bad anger, yes, but there's also good anger, righteous anger. And when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple, it was a righteous anger for the glory of God and the purity of his people. Nehemiah, while he used some problematic tactics, he's having a similar reaction here. And so as we close, I would just invite you to ask, do I get angry at the right things? Is my heart moved for the same things that move the heart of God? And what am I doing about it? Because in reality, there's some terrible things happening in this world that nobody's angry about. And we should be. Anger leads to action. 
Look at how Nehemiah finishes in verse 30. He says, Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each at his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. So two things. He says, we're going to cleanse ourselves from anything that's distracting us from God. Number two, we're going to worship. That's what the offering is pointing to, worship. So at the beginning of the message, we talked about that, that incredible Hulk. Sometimes he's angry, and when he got angry, what did he do? He smashed. Because when you get angry at the right things and our sin and its effects, we need to smash it. We smash the idols that are stealing our hearts away from God because God wants our whole heart. Why? Because God gets angry too. Did you know that? God is righteously angry with our sin. He is a holy God. Romans 1, what does Paul say? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress The truth. God is angry. He's jealous for his glory. He's righteously angry when he does not receive it. Sin also breaks the heart of God because the covenant has been broken. In fact, you get a hint of that at the end of Nehemiah. The last part of verse 31 says this. Remember me again, oh my God, for good. Remember me. But what Nehemiah is also asking is remember them. He's saying remember my people Yes, we have sinned, God. Yes, your anger is justified, but remember us. So when Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem and finds the people breaking the covenant and sinning in a way that was destroying their relationship with God, he confronts them fiercely. Why? Because he loves his people. They'd become apathetic and no longer cared about their sin or God's glory. They needed to be cleansed. And so as the worship team comes back on stage for our last song, I would just remind you that we too need to be cleansed because each and every day, like Israel, we sin. We love other gods and we worship them. We don't give God the glory that he deserves. And that sin makes God angry. But here's the good news. God, in his righteous anger against sin, did something about it. Before the foundation of the world, Paul tells us, God knew this would happen. God knew his wrath against sin would need to be satisfied. And you know what? He took action. He was so angry and he loved us so much that he chose to spill his blood on a criminal's cross. In fact, Isaiah 50, if you read there, verse 4 tells us that Messiah's beard was ripped out on our behalf. Why did Jesus Christ go to the cross? Yes, because of God's anger against sin, but he went because he loved us so much that he took our place to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. His precious blood was spilled to cleanse the temple of our heart, and he gets the glory. Did you hear that, church? Jesus died for you. His blood ran down his face for you. His beard was ripped out for you so that we could be cleansed from the inside out for the glory of God. God kept the covenant even when we did not. And my prayer today is that we would give our whole lives to God, the God who loves us so much. And when we place our faith in Jesus, he gives us the power we need to live a holy life as we repent of our sin daily for the glory of God and the sake of the gospel. Can I pray for us? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, for your grace, Lord. Thank you for uh, this book of Nehemiah. Ultimately, Lord, we thank you that Jesus came 
died in our place for our sins. And Lord, we pray with our lives you would get the glory as we respond to your precious blood, your precious sacrifice, which bought us. Help us to live in response to your grace today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.